I love I love Disney songs, and I'm a parent of four children, so we listen to a lot of Disney songs. That one's my that one's my favorite. I have to admit to you that one. There's uh, something about it. I love I really love everything about that song. I love the the music and the animation and the lyrics and all of it, and and it, it's. I think probably what I love most is the is the teaching point that that comes with it. Quite honestly, and you see everybody when when something needs to be done, they just spring into action. I mean, all the servants in the castle have been waiting around. It seems for somebody to serve, and when they finally get that opportunity, they jump into action. And then, what a great illustration of of what life for a servant is like. You know, they they served because they're servants. That's who they are. That's what they do. They didn't know any different. They, it was automatic for them. And that's immediately what they knew to do. It's their identity. So they served. They elevated the needs of somebody else above their own. They made sure that their guest was taken care of. And you know what? They enjoyed it in the process. And through that song, it becomes contagious, this idea of joyful service, because even the little clock, whose name is Cogsworth, who at first says, I don't think this is what I'm going to be a part of, later on he gets into it and even takes credit for it all, of course, at the end. And so it becomes contagious to serve joyfully. There are two lines in that song in particular that that really stand out to me. One is, life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. They didn't know what it would be like to be a servant and not serve. didn't make any sense to them. It, 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 it's incongruent. It doesn't go together. They're totally opposite. Servants serve. That's who they are and that's what they did. They didn't have to be asked. They didn't have to be talked into. Nobody had to twist their arm or pay them. They simply serve because that's who they are. And it would have been unnerving, they say, for them not to serve. They wouldn't have known what to do with it. And the second line is, Ten years we've been rusting needing so much more than dusting, needing exercise, a chance to use our skills. They wanted to serve. They loved it. They, they came alive when they were serving someone. They, they, they felt fulfillment. It was really how they, they lived their lives with joy. They needed to serve, and they realized how vital their service was to somebody else. Bell, uh, the, 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 the beauty in Beauty and the Beast... Belle gets to the castle and they realize how vital it is for them to take care of her. And so it's really, I think, a a great introduction, a great illustration for a sermon on serving. You see in action, even animated action, what servants do. Now, Scripture tells us that Jesus Himself came as what the Bible describes as a suffering, sacrificial servant. And he told his disciples, we saw this a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 13, as he washed their feet and he said, do you understand what I've done for you? And if you do, then you go and you do things like that for other people. You go and you sacrificially serve just as I've done it. We saw last week that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for for our sins. And so Jesus did those things. If he commanded his followers to do those things, and if we claim to follow Jesus, then guess what? We are servants. It's who we are. We should know nothing different than to automatically serve both the Lord and other people. It's vital, even if you don't realize it. It's your identity, even if you don't embrace that. And and it's your obligation, even if you try to avoid it. 
Now this morning, I, I want you to know that I'm talking to a variety of people this morning, and I don't know why you came this morning, maybe out of habit or just because you had nothing better to do. I don't know, but you came, and so I, I want you to know God has a word for you this morning, and maybe you're the kind of person who you showed up and and you look around, and maybe just even at our church, and you maybe you've been here a while, or you're wanting to maybe to get involved or something, and and you just think, you know, I don't really have much to offer. I, I don't, I'm not good at this, and I... I can't do that, and I really don't have time for this. I mean, I can't be there all the time. And I, maybe you feel like you don't bring much to the table. Maybe you feel insignificant, or you feel inadequate, or you just you have nothing to contribute. You think? I want you to know this morning that that you are absolutely vital to the health of our church, and you are vital to the service of other people. And I hope you'll see why as we get going. I also want to talk to people this morning who, who you, maybe this is your church. This, you say Elm Grove is my church. And you desperately want it to be what God wants it to be. The idea of serving the Lord through worship and serving each other is, is what it's going to take to see our church get to where it needs to be. Maybe you're a person who cares about the mission of Jesus. And you say, I just, I just want the name of Jesus to go forth and to be proclaimed It starts with things like this. It starts with what we'll talk about. The body of Christ loving on one another and being seen for that love and then being useful in God's service. And I also want to talk this morning, maybe some people who are sitting on the sidelines. And and you're reluctant or you're hesitant or you are resistant to getting involved and using the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of other people. And, And as... Lovingly as I can say it this morning, I hope that I can kick you in the tail just a little bit. To be honest with you. I mean, I love you. I hope you know that by now. But, you know, if I can needle you just a tad, kind of push you a little bit, because your service is vital. God has gifted you with abilities, with spiritual gifts that we are missing because you're not using them. And I don't mean just show up more. I don't mean do something, well, okay, I guess I ought to do that. No, no, no. I mean with joy, just like we saw on the screen, that you have been gifted in a very unique way to serve other people, to worship God through that, and we're missing out. It's vital. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to find out a little bit more this morning about this automatic life of sacrificial service that the followers of Jesus are to have. You'll see the handout there in your bulletin. It's got the scripture on it if you'd like to follow along there. It'll also be on the screen. But Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. That's where we'll be camping out today. Let me read this, and then we'll, we'll work through it and, and try to understand it. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, we have many parts in one body, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. If service, in service. If teaching, 
in teaching, if exhorting, in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. The series that we're in is called Serve, and, and as I told you, not just for novelty, but because I think there are certain things that play out of a commitment to Jesus, every sermon series from this August till next August will be a one-word title. So we started with Commit. What does it look like to commit to the Lord? I mean, that's the call in Scripture is to surrender completely to Jesus Christ, to be absolutely committed. And then what flows out of that? One of the things that should naturally flow, as we see here, is a life of service. So the idea is to serve. We'll start a sermon series next week called Go. Part of what should naturally flow out of a commitment to Christ is a lifestyle of evangelism, a lifestyle of going to people who need to hear the gospel. We'll do a, a series around Christmas called Worship. And part of the outflow of a commitment to Jesus is that you can't help but worship the Lord. And as the, the calendar year turns over, just so you know, so you can plan around it, plan your vacation, I suppose, accordingly, we're going to do a series called Give. Some of you will want to miss those. Some of you want to drag some other people here. Listen to this guy. I've been telling you this. But we're going to talk about some of the things that should be the natural outflow of our commitment to Christ. And, and this morning we're wrapping up the series called Serve. And, and we're looking this morning at... Why serving, why a life, a life of, of sacrificial service is so important. Now, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is leading out of 11 chapters where he's given a lot of theological dialogue, a lot of really good, important stuff on what salvation is all about. He talks a lot about the grace of God and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how, how salvation comes by this grace and it's only through faith in Jesus that we receive it. And he talks about how it's night and day. We are completely different. Once we are in Christ, we are totally different. We're no longer under the power and the penalty of sin. And he spends 11 chapters talking about that. And then he says, the beginning of this chapter, therefore. That is a, is a transitional statement from all 11 chapters. And he's, he's going to talk about in chapters 12 through 16, now what? When you know all that stuff, in light of all that God has done in your life, now what? What do you do as a result of that? How does that transform and change the way that you should live? And it's interesting to me that it begins with those, the, the idea that those who follow Jesus, that those who claim to be His followers, should be marked by this idea of sacrificial service to the Lord and to others. That's how He first plays it out. Because you know Jesus, because God's grace has overwhelmed you in your life, this is now what we should do. The implication is so strong that these, these qualities he mentioned should really be expected of all believers. You realize that, that, that once you have been saved, you've been saved to serve, to worship, to, to sacrifice for others. That's the idea. The implication is it's not optional. You don't really have a choice in this matter. It's not exactly like, well, I can pick this part of the Christian life, but I don't like this sacrifice stuff. I leave that out. It, that, that doesn't go together. Paul just says, because of the grace of God, therefore, live as a living sacrifice. Serve others. That's what he tells us. You know, and, and to some degree by implication, since those things are to be the marks of every Christian life, I, I just want to tell you this morning that if your life is not marked, if you look in your life and you see no sacrificial living, I'm not talking about just the stuff that you have. If, if you see no love of God, if you see no love of other people, Maybe you're going through a little bit of a dry season, and I understand how that can go in the ebbs and flows of our Christian life with the Lord, but I also want to tell you that if you've never seen that kind of change in your life, 
and yet you claim to have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I would spend some time with the Lord, even tune me out and talk to Him this morning to determine, do I truly know Jesus or not? Because if your life is not marked by a deep love for God and love for other people, then it might be evidence that you don't truly know Jesus. And so maybe that's something you can do. But Paul tells us here that very simply our lives are to be marked by our sacrificial service. We are to be servants. That's who we are. As a result of God's grace in our life, that's who He has made us to be. And I love what Paul tells us about this life of sacrifice. He tells us really three general things here that we'll cover and I'll try to break down a little bit for you. First, he says, your your sacrificial service, it's how you worship. This is how you go about worshiping the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. He says, in view of God's mercies, in view of what God has done to sacrifice His Son on behalf of us sinners bound for hell, who He has rescued out of that and saved, in light of all we know about Jesus and grace and salvation... Because of what God has done in your lives, then offer yourselves, he says, as living sacrifices. Place yourself on the altar at God's disposal, he says. Now, for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I'll be honest with you. I don't know, you probably have been in church before, if you've gone to any kind of church, especially maybe a... Uh, a, a Baptist church, maybe you've been here before, and, and the, the end of the service is the call to come and pray at the altar. And we look around and we think, what are you talking about? I didn't, nobody has built an altar. I don't even know what an altar is. What in the world is that? Well, it goes back to Old Testament times, obviously, when they would sacrifice animals on a wooden or a, a, an altar built of stones. And that would be something they would sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of their sin or as a means of thanksgiving or something along those lines. And so it's where they would show their devotion to the Lord. So if you ever hear me say, and I try to make sure I don't use a whole lot of churchy terms just because somebody may not understand that. But if you ever hear me say, if you want to come and pray at the altar, all that is, it's a place that you can go just to symbolically lay yourself on God's sacrificial altar to say, Lord, you have all of me. Paul says that's what our lives are to be like. When they would read this and they would hear this, they would understand it because they knew what it looked like to give an animal as a sacrifice. They killed that animal never to get it back, and it was given to God. Paul says that's how your life should be, except stay alive and do that all the time. Constantly operate as if you have put yourself at God's disposal, that you have died to yourself, and you live only to Him. It's a living sacrifice. There was no getting that animal back after it was offered to God, after it was killed. And our lives should be marked by the same thing. It's how we worship the Lord is to completely surrender to Him. Such a life of sacrifice was to be evident in their bodies, he said, on the outside, not just on the inside. Now, our society has tried to convince us that our faith in Jesus Christ should be just a personal matter. And the pressure is growing to keep that just a personal matter. But if you look at the Scripture, and you look at what uh, what is normal in the New Testament, there's nothing just personal about faith in Jesus. It's not just for you, and just to make you more pious and religious and better and good. It's not what it's about. It is meant to be something that you experience, yes, and that then is expressed in your outward actions both on display and toward other people. 
So this isn't about some just inward or mystical experience that you keep to yourself. Paul said this is to be on display. And he said this is, in in verse 1, your spiritual worship. It's how you worship God. You want to know, how can I worship? What does it mean to worship God? It's a way of life. It's how you live. Now most of us would think that this morning we came to a worship service. It's something we attend. And if you've been in church for any length of time, then okay, each week I go to worship. That's, you know, okay, we have a worship service Sunday morning, and next Sunday morning we'll have another one, and we might call it that on Sunday night or Wednesday night or whatever. But Paul says, it's not just something you attend, it's how you live. Now he goes on in verse 2 to instruct them, at least in part, on how this is going to be accomplished. If you're going to worship God through being a living sacrifice, what does that involve? Verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this age. Paul knew it was going to be difficult for them. Paul knew that it would be easy to just conform to whatever's around them. It would be easy to uh, attempting to worship God just at the appointed times and then go do what you want the rest of the time. So he gives them a reminder and some instructions on how to continually sacrifice everything to the Lord. They're to ensure that they're not squeezed into the mold of the world. Now, my kids enjoy Play-Doh. We don't allow them to do Play-Doh very often because if you've ever allowed kids to do Play-Doh, then you know why. Because they get it everywhere and it gets ground into everything and they don't clean it up. That's the way kids are. You know what I'm talking about? Some of your grandparents, you know, oh, that'll be fun. You know, and then you spend the next three weeks getting out of your carpet. You know, that's just the way that it is. But here's, here's, here's the example. Paul is saying that it's easy to simply be like Play-Doh. And you've got the mold, and here's what happens when my kids play with this. They push the Play-Doh down here, like this, and they squeeze this together real good. And you know what happens after they cut it out just a little bit? Out pops a chicken leg. It's amazing. It's a chicken leg. And if you use the other one, it would be a steak. You could have steak and chicken in Play-Doh. Isn't it wonderful? And some of your kids have tried that, literally to eat that before but you know what here's the thing about the mold and the play-doh the mold always wins always the play-doh gets pushed down in there and guess what i could just do it all again push it back down in there and you know what i'm going to get the next time a chicken leg it's amazing entertainment for hours chicken leg after chicken leg the truth is what paul is saying is the mold of the world always wins He's telling us, look, you you aren't to be Play-Doh anymore. You're not to be this. You're not to give yourself over to be molded and shaped and squeezed into what this world system, this world's way of thinking wants you to do. Instead, he says in verse 2, you are to be transformed the way that God wants you to be by the renewing, he says, of your mind. That's where it starts. You're not to think like people who don't know Jesus. You're to think like somebody who does know Jesus. And that's how you can avoid being the Play-Doh squeezed into the mold, made like everybody else, made like this world wants you to be. If you want to be like Jesus, if you are a true follower of His, and you say, that's what I want my life to be, I'm not sure where to start. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm still going to mess up. But I want to be like Jesus. Paul says, first of all, resist being pushed into the world's mold. And at the same time, let God work on your mind. Have Him change how you think and how you see things and what truth is there. Paul says, don't be Plato anymore. Don't don't be squeezed into that. Instead, worship the Lord by letting Him transform you. 
from the inside out. Set your mind, he would say in Colossians, on things above, not on earthly things. Think about things, he said in Philippians, that are pure and holy and true and honest and stuff that will help you become like Jesus. Set your mind on those things so that from the inside out, God can transform you. Do you realize that your mind is a part of your worship? Not only is resisting evil influences, not only is resisting sin part of worship and sacrifice to the Lord, but placing yourself in your mind at God's disposal to say, Lord, you fill me up. You make sure that my mind is different. That's part of worship. That's the everyday stuff. Sacrificial service to the Lord is, is how you worship. It's how you place yourself at His disposal every day. Maybe this week, just each day, the only thing you take away from the sermon this morning is to place yourself every day as if you are a sacrifice on God's altar and say, Lord, I'm dead. You live in me. You live through me. Lord, I don't even know what that means this week, but God, all I want to do is be a living sacrifice for you, holy and pleasing. It's how you worship the Lord. So this service thing is not just something nice you do for someone else. A random act of kindness here and there. This putting yourself at God's disposal, living as a sacrifice, that's how you worship God every day. You may not sing to the Lord every day. I hope you do. You may not read your Bible cover to cover every day. That would be kind of hard. But, but you can every single day say, Lord, I'm, I'm dying to myself, and I'm going to place myself at your disposal. It's how you worship. Secondly, a life of sacrificial service, well, that, that's how you keep yourself grounded. Paul says in verse 3, by the grace given to me, he says, okay, this is my job to tell you this. I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Paul's role to play, he says, requires that I tell you this. He's an apostle. He's the one who's going to speak on behalf of God. He says, I've got to let you know this. In your life of sacrifice, if you're going to be this living sacrifice, and later on if you're going to be useful to others, then you have to make sure that you have an accurate view of yourself. This, this living as a sacrifice, not being conformed, but being transformed, ought to place you, he says, before the Lord and say, God, you evaluate me. Give me an honest and accurate view of my life. Don't overthink yourself, he says. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. He's talking about that mindset that we're all prone to that doesn't necessarily want to put anybody else down but simply wants to elevate us. I'm a, just a tad smarter. I mean, I get it just a little bit more than everybody else does. Yeah, I just drive smarter than everybody, all these idiots on the road, you know. I don't cut anybody off. I drive the exact right speed. I always do. You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's not that everybody else is less than. It's just that I'm just a little better than. I mean, I can't help it, you know. I mean, you know. Just how God made me, isn't it? Now, I know you won't admit to that kind of thinking. But the truth is, none of us have to be taught to think that way. It just happens. Because we're human, because we have a sinful nature, we just naturally elevate ourselves. We're just naturally bent toward whatever is best for us. But Paul says, as you worship the Lord through sacrificial service, as you live your life, it's vital and it's important to make sure that you keep yourself grounded so that you're not blocking God's blessing in your life. You're not hampering your relationship with Him by pride. And he says, instead of thinking more highly than you should, you should think sensibly. Be in your right mind is the way that he terms that. Don't, don't be out of your mind, out of touch with reality. And we go back to the Plato example. If we're allowing ourselves to be constantly squeezed into the, to the world's mold, 
then, then what we'll do with all the other chicken legs is we'll compare ourselves. Well, we all sort of look the same, but, you know, i got better coloring. I, I'm prettier. I'm more useful. I'm really special to the Creator. You know, it, yeah, and I was pressed into this mold, but, you know, I'm different from everybody else. And you know, without me saying it, how detrimental that can be. The comparison game will either elevate you or will relegate you to a lower status. But Paul says if you're thinking sensibly about yourself, if you're truly set on serving God and serving others, then you won't be worried about how to eclipse others. Your measure, as he says here, instead think sensibly as God has given, distributed a measure of faith to each one. Your measure won't be how good you might be at this or that. It'll just be how does God measure me? What does God say about me? Now this matters because some of us play the comparison game over and over and over. And you're trapped by it. And you spend hours on social media trying to figure out why your selfie doesn't get more likes than somebody else's. And you don't understand these things. That doesn't make any sense. That was a great picture. You took 400 of those things trying to get it right. And you'll try again. Now we laugh, but it's true. Maybe not on social media for you, but in some ways... We're constantly jockeying for position. And Paul says, give all that stuff up. You just want to live like Jesus wants you to live, then just keep yourself grounded by being humble and evaluating yourself only as He does. Don't worry about all of those things, he says. It's how you keep yourself grounded, he says. If you want to live a life of sacrificial service, it'll do that for you. And then thirdly, he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to tell us, this is how you make yourself useful. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend just a little bit of time here just explaining these things briefly that he mentions. And, and, and he, he uses one of his favorite illustrations. He, he talks in verse 4, he says, Now as we have many parts in one body, talking about the human body, and all the parts do not have same, the same function. He uses the human body. It's one of Paul's favorite things to talk about. When he talks about the church, one of the things he comes back to several times is comparing it to the human body. And so what he says here is that, Yet the human body has different parts. We all know that. And they don't all have the same function or responsibility or purpose. But even so, he says, they function as one unit. And he wrote in other letters how, how one part affects another and so on and so forth. It's, it's important to kind of reiterate that a little bit. Because every, every part of the human body has an important role to play. I mean, if one part is unhealthy, then the entire body suffers for it. I mean, you ever had a broken toe? You know, and then you start limping favoring that, and then your knees hurt, your hips hurt. You know, you, you ever had a hangnail? A paper cut? You think, that's just small and insignificant, but it ruins your day. You ever had a headache that won't go away? It's just debilitating. It's only one part of your body, but it affects everything else. You see what Paul's getting at. He says, in the same way, you know, other parts of the body can, can have a positive effect. You know, there's something called reflexology. Some of you may have looked into this. You know, when you, when you put a little pressure and you, you kind of rub it a certain way on one part of the foot or, or the hand, it'll make that headache go away. It's amazing. Isn't it interesting how, how helping one part of the body can then aid another part of the body? And he says also, the, the parts of the body, he talks about this in other letters, they're inseparable and they work together. Now, if you don't think this is true, then without help from other fingers, try to bend your pinky finger without also bending your ring finger. See, see, see if you can do that. For some, you can for others, guess what? They are absolutely inseparable. They work. They look at. I can't. They work together. 
Some of you can't rub your stomach and pat your head at the same time. You drive yourself nuts with things like that because your hand, they want to work together doing the same things. Paul's talking about that stuff. He says, look, every part is vital. If one is unhealthy, or if one is healthy, then they affect the others. And they're inseparable. They work together to do certain things. Paul says, just like the human body is like that, he said, made up of individual parts that that collectively are one system. He says, so is the body of Christ, the church. He says, not everybody has the same gifting. The same role to play, but every role and every gifting is vital. Like I said, there are some who came this morning, and you come each week here, and you feel so insignificant and so useless. Hear the words of God this morning. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. It doesn't matter what your role, it doesn't matter what your gifting Paul says you are members of each other, and if one member is not functioning properly, then everybody else suffers for it, even if we don't know it. Each of us is useful and vital to others. And he says we are useful, so you know what he says? So be useful. He says, use your gifts. We have different gifts. Verse 6, he says, use it. He talks about these different things. Exercising those gifts. I'll be honest with you, the, the, the key, I think, and, and some would argue with me, some would say that the key to growing a church is to make sure that you have a certain style of music, that you dress a certain way, that, that you make sure that certain ministries are always a part of the church, and that you, 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 you design the worship service just so, and it flows all together, and it's perfect, and the sermon lasts only about 20 minutes, and... You know, that's how you grow a church. Obviously, I'm doing it wrong. Because this sermon now is over 20 minutes. Just, you know, I know some of you are keeping track at home. I really believe, though, that Paul hits on one of the great keys to growing a church. And I don't necessarily mean growing the church by leaps and bounds in numbers. And I, I pray that's true, quite honestly, because that means more people have come to know Jesus. I think... I think that's what we look at. But, but he talks about this, this idea of unity among the members of the body, which builds a strong community in a place that it looks as if there's something going on there. How in the world do all those different kind of people get along with each other? I mean, look around this room. We've got some folks who have nothing in common with each other. Now, some of you are married. You know, that's just the way that it is. But we have folks that have, have nothing in common. I mean, you, you're not from the same place, or maybe you are, or you went to different schools, or I don't know what. You, you, you see life one way or whatever. But you know what's amazing is that in the body of Christ, we all come together, and we're all made useful for one another, and we're vital, and we're interconnected, and we are members of each other. That, I believe. If we can figure out how can we do that, how can we build that kind of community where there is unity and everybody, their role is fulfilled, their gifting is used, I think that's how you grow a church. And that's not easy and it's not fun and it's not glamorous and it's not cool. But I really believe there's something about that. Paul lists several gifts here. Now, i just tell you real quick, he's not talking about your natural abilities. He's not talking about, well, I can play music really well. Or, you know, I'm, I'm good with computers. or what? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about gifts given to you at the moment of salvation that you didn't have before. Now, he may, this, the Holy Spirit may utilize some of what you're naturally good at. But he's not talking about that, that just because you can sing well, that that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. That's an ability. 
The, the way that you use that is based upon your gifting and so on. We'll see this as we get into it. So he just talks about the fact that everybody has some different gift. And he goes on to mention several. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important to mention these. Because if you read this scripture, you might say, what in the world is he talking about? What does that mean? Maybe, maybe somebody here will have one of these gifts. Now, Paul talks in a couple of different locations about spiritual gifts. And, and some folks would argue that these, these are the only spiritual gifts. Other folks would argue, well, this is just representative. These are categorical. Whatever it is, he lists several here. We'll look into just for a second. You may find yourself with one of these gifts. And as you use them, you make yourself useful to the body of Christ. The first gift he mentions is prophecy. Now, some of you say, you know, I, mean, I saw that on TV the other day. There was some guy who was telling us when the rapture was going to happen. He's telling the end of the world is coming. Everybody who's predicted that so far has been wrong. Just so you know, if anybody, if anybody claims to have this supernatural ability, they're going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, then just take them back to James chapter 4, when James basically tells them, listen, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So if you're considering tomorrow too much, you're foolish, he says. The gift of prophecy here is not about the ability to predict the future. That'd be cool, but that's not what it's about. Even the Old Testament prophets, do you realize that the overwhelming majority of the things that they talked about weren't stuff that's going to happen in the future? It was, thus saith the Lord, the King James puts it. Here's how it is. Here's what God says, and you'd better listen, and if you don't, guess what's going to happen? That's kind of the way that they operate. The gift of prophecy is simply the spirit-empowered ability and desire to speak on behalf of God the words He's already said. This is not new revelation. Make, make no mistake. I want, I want to be clear. This is not getting something new from God that nobody's ever heard before. If you have anybody that you're listening to, anybody on television you're watching, anything like that, that claims to have some new revelation from God, turn it off. It's garbage. It's foolish. It's speaking what God has already said with boldness and clarity so that other folks can understand it and repent. It's the idea of prophecy. It's, it's boldness to say, here's what God says. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be that person who's in everybody's face. You don't have to be bullhorn guy on the corner. I'm just saying, you have to. You, if this is your gift, you're going to say, Lord, I, I, I will not back down, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. How do you use that kind of gift? I, I think what Paul says, if you have the gift of prophecy, he says, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Now, that's kind of an odd rendering. Essentially what that means is, is you'll know somebody is speaking on behalf of God if it doesn't contradict what God has already said. But that's the measure, the standard. How do, how do we know if this person is speaking the right things? And I'll be honest with you. You know, even every sermon you hear, it, it ought to be backed up, not just by the cherry picking that the pastor does on certain passages, but does this line up with Scripture? Is this biblical? It's how we know if God is speaking through someone is, is it biblical? So, so how do you use that gift? Well, you just use it. <laughs> you speak on behalf of God. You may be in conversation. You say, look, this is what God says. You may be leading a family. You may be leading a, a, you know, in a school or in a job or somewhere. I don't know. But you just speak on behalf of God. and say, look, here's what God says. And he goes on to talk about the gift of service, which is just kind of a general term for, for ministry, for doing things for people. It actually, it, it, the idea kind of carries a connotation of waiting tables. Sort of like a person who's got the apron around them or whatever, a little towel, and they're waiting on people. And that's the idea. It's the Spirit-empowered gifting, ability, and desire to do things that maybe nobody will ever see. Now, we've got, we have folks in here that are, that are just like that. You say, that's my gifting. I don't like being out front. Don't you dare call on me. 
If you call on me to pray out loud, I'm going to vomit. I'm just, it's going to be awful. I, you, and I will never talk to you again. You know, I mean, that, they don't want to be up front. I mean, they're scared. You know, that's just the way they are. But I tell you what, they're so vital, aren't they? The menial, menial you know, little tasks that everybody would say, I don't want to mess with that. Well, if we didn't have folks in the church, folks in the body of Christ who said, you know what, that's, that's where I come alive, is doing those little things like that. I mean, you see how vital it is. I mean, you say, well, all I'm doing is cleaning up after a fellowship. I just put a few tables away. I mean, I just rolled out the tablecloth. I mean, all I did was serve some drinks to people. And Paul, he just says, look, if you've got the gift of service, then what? Then serve. Do it. And get after it. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait for somebody to talk you into it. Just get going and serve with all your heart. Just get busy meeting needs, doing what needs to be done, helping in any and every way you can. He goes on to talk about teaching which is the idea that you're able to make clear the instructions that are given in Scripture. You, you explain it very well. And, and listen, you know these people. It's somehow when they talk, it just makes sense. And you try to say the same thing, and you can't make a bit of sense of it, and you listen to them and you think, how in the world are you able to do that? I mean, this is maybe even a person, they haven't gone to, to college to get a degree in, in education. So they know all the greatest teaching techniques. They don't have a, 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 you know, a doctorate from a prestigious seminary. They're just good at teaching what the Bible says. It's a Holy Spirit-empowered thing. And those are the folks, quite honestly, when we recognize that, we've got to let them teach. And I don't care if they're young or if they're old. When I see two little guys today, you know, taking up the offering, you know, Hank and Max, and I, you know, I just think this is not just a message for, for those who are grown-up Christians. You realize that when you get saved and the you know, Holy Spirit comes into your life, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't get a junior Holy Spirit that grows up at some point. You get the full measure of God's Holy Spirit. So our young people have, have spiritual gifts. We ought to let them use. I don't know what it is. We ought to help them discern what they are and let them use those gifts. Not some little junior Holy Spirit. They're fine taking up offering. You know, you understand what I'm saying. But if, when we discover a spiritual gift in a young person, we ought to give them, give them some leeway. Train them, help them, guide them, corral them if we need to, whatever it may be. But we ought to let them use those things. I think part of the reason why young people leave the church, the church never gave them a chance to be involved. The church never, never gave them a chance to feel like I have some spiritual gifting that can be used. I'm not useful. Best way to keep somebody is give them something to do. <laughs> Paul talks about the gift of exhortation after teaching. And this really kind of flows right behind it because the person who teaches is going to explain to you what to do. The person who has the gift of exhortation is going to help you do what you were just taught to do. That's a weird kind of word, and we don't use this. You don't go around talking, let me exhort you today. We don't talk about that with it's a weird word that we don't use. It's a Bible churchy kind of word, but it's a great word. Maybe the best way to think about this is sort of like a coach. You know how a coach is going to use different techniques to motivate you. Sometimes they're going to pat you on the back. They're going to kick you a little bit. They're going to shove you. Whatever they're going to have to do, get you going to do what the game plan says you ought to do. That's the person with the gift of exhortation. They're an encourager, yes, but they're far more than an encourager. It's not just the gift of encouraging. Hey, you can do it. It's not a cheerleader. It's somebody who's going to come alongside and help you get and stay on the path that Jesus wants you to be on. Sometimes that person is going to be somebody you don't like. You know why? Because they're going to tell you the truth. You're a knucklehead. Quit doing that. <coughs> you ever had somebody tell you, you're a knucklehead? What are you doing? We all need somebody in our life who can tell us we're a knucklehead. You know, I mean, that's just the way it is. 
the exhorters are the people who are going to come out and push you and say, you can do this, and here's how that you go about doing it. If that's you, don't back down. Don't assume that somebody doesn't need you to speak into their life the truth of God's Word, that they don't need some help along the way. We live in a very lonely society. Our churches are full of very lonely people who seem to have nobody who's helping them to get to where they know God wants them to be. We need people with the gift of exhortation to use it and help them. Paul goes on to talk about the gift of giving. Now you say... All right, I'm off the hook. I just gave a little bit in the offering, but next week I'm not because there are people with the gift of giving. And it's their responsibility, I guess, to give. So I'm done. I don't have that gift at all, so I can't give anymore. That's not what Paul is saying, just so you know. We as believers are all called and, I believe, obligated to give toward the mission of Jesus Christ through the local church. But what he's saying is that there is a gift of giving that is just unique, that some people have this ability and desire to give far above the minimum to see God's work. I mean, they're the kind of people that see needs that everybody else would, I never even, I didn't know that. They're the kind of people that they'll meet those needs only because those needs need to be met. They're not looking for anything. They're not looking to be elevated or get any attention whatsoever. Paul says you should give, if that's your gift, with generosity, just because the need needs to be met. So maybe that's you, and I know there are people like that in this church. And you don't have all the money in the world. This isn't about how much money you have. But your heart is so full to give with generosity to people, and it just pours out. And I just want to say, do you understand how vital you are? Do you understand how vital you are to, to our church and to the people in it? Give, he says, with generosity. He goes on to talk about leading. Now, if this is the gift to pick, I'll be honest with you, pick this one. Don't pick giving. You realize we don't get to pick, right? The Holy Spirit chooses for us. But if we were to get to pick, nobody would pick giving. We'd pick leading. Let me be out front. Let me get all the attention. Let me get all the credit. Let, let, let me stand up in front of those people and tell them what they need to do. i got some words for them anyway. Some of you, yeah, I know. We'd pick leading. But to realize, to realize what Paul is talking about, he's not talking about the kind of leadership that just tells everybody what to do. He's talking about the kind of leadership that sacrifices itself for the benefit of everybody else. Those are the true leaders. The true leaders in the church are not the folks who are looking for advancement. They're not the folks who are looking to climb the ladder. They're the people who lead, and yes, they may have to make some tough decisions, but they lead so that it benefits other people. Paul says, if that's your gift, then do it well. He says, lead. The idea there, he says, is to put your best effort into it. Give it all that you have. But folks, I'm going to tell you, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll close here real, real quick. Leading is something, and I, I say this as your pastor, I love you. Leading is something we desperately need at Elm Grove. We, and, and I've told different groups this before. We have, we have two ethics of leadership that have guided us as far as I have seen. And we're getting there. But two ethics of leadership. One is, I don't want to appear like I'm trying to run things. It's one thing, and I've, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I wish I had a dollar. Because y'all could have gotten rid of me by now to retired. Guess what? God has given the gift of leadership to some people. You know what they should do? Lead. They don't have, it doesn't have to be me. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying it, it's not necessarily positional. It, it's, it's gifting. We have to have people who appear like they're trying to run things. Why? Because God has given them the gift of leadership. Now, I know that scares some people, and I'm not trying to in any way. Hear me out. But I'm just saying that leadership is not a dirty word. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. 
We need people who have been gifted, who operate according to what God says, who lead for the benefit of others. We need leadership. Second thing is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's our second guiding ethic of leadership. The problem is, sometimes we get so comfortable in what's broke, we don't know it needs to be fixed. We need leaders who are empowered by the Holy Spirit who say, I'm not worried about myself. I don't care about what position, how much money, and so on and so forth. I just want to lead because God has gifted me, and I want to help these folks. I want to help this church get to where God wants it to be. That's the kind of leadership we need. We don't need point man leadership. We don't need people that are sit back and tell you all to do. That's not what I'm talking about. But would you join me by praying that God would raise up leaders in our church who lead for the benefit of others to get us where God wants us to be? We're desperate for it. And I don't say that because we have a bad church. I love this church. We have a great, great church. I got an email this week about how great our church is from somebody who's visited here one time. And all I said was, I agree. Absolutely. But we need leadership to continue to keep us where God wants us to be. So if you're a leader, then lead, please. And Paul closes things out with the gift of mercy. This is the idea that somebody, they're just gifted with a broken heart for people who are in need, who are suffering, who are in distress, who might be aging. Life has been tough on them, whatever it may be. And it's not always that they know what to say. It's just they're always there. (laughs) They're always good at that. And they just bring comfort to people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, do this with cheerfulness. You know why? Because it may be tough. You realize when it's a one-way street, a lot of times that's hard. And you're not getting anything back from the people that you're loving and serving and trying to help them get through a problem or whatever. It can be tough. And Paul says, do it with cheerfulness. One, one, One little thing I came across, it says, this is the idea of your heart laughing and your eyes dancing. Do it with cheerfulness. You're going to help people. You're going to help folks who are in distress. Do it with your heart laughing and your eyes dancing. The question I just want to ask you this morning as I close is, do you understand? I hope you do, but do you understand how vital your service is? It's vital to your relationship with God because it's how you worship. And if you aren't serving sacrificially, serving the Lord, laying yourself at His disposal every day, you're not worshiping. And your soul needs it. Your soul is desperate to worship something, to worship someone. It's vital to you because it's how it it keeps you, you grounded. And it's vital to other people and to this church because it's how you make yourself useful. And so this week, I just want to challenge you with just an overall thought. How this week can you elevate Jesus and elevate people through serving? How can you elevate, how can you serve them like you can't help it? I just I can't help but elevate. I can't help but serve the Lord. I can't help but elevate Jesus. I can't help but elevate others. That's just who I am. Maybe you'd remember that song. And you say they just sprang into action. That's who they are. Just elevate Jesus because of what He's done in my life. Elevate others because that's what God has gifted me to do. Serve. Whatever that may mean. Let's pray together. In just a moment, we're going to close with a song. It's going to be a worship song. It'll be a song that we we practice with our voices, laying ourselves before the Lord. So I, I just in these next couple of moments, before we stand to sing, we wonder what God has said to you. 
What's he spoken to you this morning? Is it something about worship? Is it something about you being more grounded? Is it something about being useful to others? What is it? What's the commitment that you need to make this morning? What's the response that God wants you to have? You don't have to come and tell me, but I'd love for you to so I can pray for you. You can talk to God right there. What has He said to you? Are you willing to, to serve Him, to serve others, just because that's who you are? Lord, we worship You this morning. We lay ourselves on Your altar as sacrifices putting ourselves at your disposal. Lord, keep us grounded, make us useful. Help us to serve. We pray in Jesus' name.